This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Simon Broadbeck, who is a reader at Cardiff University. Uh, we'll be speaking about a fascinating new book on the Mahabharata called uh, Divine Descent and the Four World Ages in the Mahabharata. And uh, bonus, uh, it's available open access, uh, courtesy of uh, Cardiff. Uh, the link uh, to the publication is in the podcast notes. Simon, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much, Raj. It's good to be back. If I'm not mistaken, I, we spoke at the end of 2019, but your last fascinating publication, and here you are shooting at another one. You've been a busy boy. Yeah, well, in between times, we got locked up, didn't we? Um, so <laughs> there were many months in which it wasn't possible to do much. And and as I'm, I'm not encumbered by any family responsibilities at the moment, and so I found it very a good opportunity to get my head down and 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 to 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 write what i thought was going to be a short article right right i've i've been on both sides of that writing an article that probably should be a book and you know no anyhow um it just so happens that i i, I had a podcast interview it just happened to be just before our call on um, an individual who was writing on um, uh, AI and, uh, and and the ways in which uh, um, 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 uh, it's theologized as Kalki at the end of the age in India. And he, I happened to mention that I'd be speaking to you shortly. And he said, wow, I wish that book was out a few years ago. So you know what? Apparently there is a need and want for this sort of book. What's your book about? Um, well, it's uh, it's about the apparent conflict between uh, the yuga system, as presented in the Mahabharata, and the avatara idea. Um, the avatara idea is most famously known according to what Krishna says to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, which is that he um, takes form uh, occasionally in order to... Um, when Dharma is at a low point in order to rescue the good and punish the wicked. And you would think, according to that statement, that after Krishna has come, that the world would be more dharmic than it was before. But um, the the text is quite clear that the, the Kurukshetra war is located at the junction between the Dvapara Yuga, the third of the four Yugas, and the Kali Yuga, the last and worst of them. And so, in fact, uh, in the period after Krishna's visit, things are considerably worse than they were before he came. And that is a 
a bit of a, well, an apparent contradiction between uh, these two ideas, the idea of the yugas and the idea of the the avatar or incarnation. Um, so, so the purpose of the book is really to 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 state that problem um, as clearly as possible, and to uh, to see if what we can make of it, to see how 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 this situation is to be resolved. Well, well, to your point, in in the famous uh, verses of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, uh, not all, he said, not only does he say he comes to punish the wicked and protect the righteous, but literally he says he comes to reestablish Dharma. Hmm. So, so he he declares, um, you know, outright that this is what is to be done, and yet clearly, um, there are muddy waters ahead and atrocities ahead, and uh, tradition would would have us believe it's been all downhill since, and we've got a long way to go yet <laughs> downhill, and so. Um, before we uh, dive into some of your discussion, maybe contextualize for us, is this quandary something that vexes tradition? Is this a theological problem that we see? Uh, or is it something that that has, has dawned on you through your careful reading of the, the Mahabharata? Well, neither, really. I mean, it has dawned on me, but I'm I'm not the first person to whom it's dawned. Um, As far as I know, we don't have uh, a long tradition of pundits scratching their head about this apparent contradiction and and, uh, coming up with with ideas to to try and get around it. So it's not uh, one of the traditional topics of discussion, but... It's certainly been a topic of discussion in uh, the scholarly community in recent decades, uh, and I'm not surprised because it—I mean, it's—it's it's been in the back of my head for 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 some time, and I've heard other other people alluding to it as well. And the, in fact, I found quite a few quotations that I've I've put in the book where where previous scholars have have expressed this. Uh, this apparent dissonance in various ways. So it's, I mean, it, it it's commonly been remarked upon in recent times. Mm. Yeah. And so, in terms of your book uh, in particular, what um, what do you do with this? How do you make sense of this this um, incongruence? Well, uh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, I start off by stating it by by introducing the 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 yuga cycle and the avatara idea and just setting the scene to be able to state the problem as clearly as possible and then i uh i mention a few uh a few ideas that have been proposed to try and get around it and the, the principal one of those is is from madeleine biardot who who her approach is to say that although the Kurukshetra war does take place at the junction between the Dvapara and the Kali Yugas. Nonetheless, that junction is presented in the text as if it is the junction between the Kali Yuga and the next Krita Yuga. So, so that when the war is over and the righteous king Yudhishthira reigns, that is effectively a new uh, Krita Yuga and a new a new cycle so so i mean and i think that the the, the text does uh 
does play that game. It it does present things in those terms to some degree, but it's it, to my mind that's not really a proper solution because it doesn't take away the problem. I mean, if you like, you could say that uh, this solution is an acknowledgement that there is a problem, but it's it's a it's it's a kind of symbolic solution uh, rather than a real solution. So, so the I wouldn't say that I've necessarily been able to come up with a proper solution, but what I've tried to do is to to put down my thinking on this topic. Um, which I think gives us two clear directions in which we can try and go in order to get a better solution than uh, Madeleine Biardot's. Uh, so there's, um, there's two main chapters in the book um, which articulate two different kinds of solution. And the first one of those is to say that... Um, the avatara somehow represents what is happening across the whole Mahayuga, across the whole cycle. And that means that one of the things that's happening across the whole cycle is that Dharma drops three times at the ends of the first three yugas. And the other thing that happens is at the end of the last yuga, it goes back up by uh, to where it started. So there's as it were, two directions of movement. And my representative solution is to say that the avatara represents both of those movements, even though they act in opposite directions. So that when you have the story of Krishna at this place in time, it's not just telling you what God is doing at that particular spot. It's telling you more generally what God is doing uh, across the cycle as a whole. Uh, and that means that the description is self-contradictory because if you tease out the two aspects of it, in fact, they, they, they are actualized at different moments. Um, so that's my, uh, broadly speaking, my first uh, solution, which is, which is to, to think of the avatara not as a a causal actor not as not as actually making uh an objective change in the world but somehow as as representing god's role with respect to time uh as a whole um so that was that's the longest uh, of my two answers uh the, the the other answer that i came across is to to think of it more literally uh, and more causally and to think, okay, well, if Krishna who comes at the beginning of the Kali Yuga is uh, establishing Dharma, then he must somehow uh, plant a seed that takes 1200 years to bear fruit. So uh, this idea is that by coming and doing what he does uh, at the beginning of the Kali Yuga, somehow Krishna makes the next Krita Yuga happen 12,000 years later. And in order for that to work, I think we, we have uh, an emergent 
exciting view of the nature of the text, because the way this would work is by the story of what Krishna did, and in particular, the story of what Krishna said to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, being presented in a Sanskrit text that is accessible to all genders and to all social classes, uh, means that once the Mahabharata is, as it were, published and released, people can take advantage of Krishna's message. And even if it takes 1,200 years, uh, the, the, the existence of the Mahabharata can eventually lead to a situation where everybody becomes proper bhaktas of Krishna and um, and brings about the new Krita Yuga. So that, broadly speaking, is, is, is the second of my ideas um, that, uh, that has a, a, a very important uh, role for, for, for the Mahabharata itself. And so, so with this, with this uh, textual causation theory, um, we, can, we, can, we can really make a, a do good justice to, to the, the Bhagavad Gita message at the heart of the Mahabharata and, and to the, the, the Mahabharata's apparently very high opinion of itself as a, as a, a kind of instrument of salvation. Hmm. Uh, say a word, Simon, uh, about um, uh, what to say without getting uh, too specialist. Um, uh, how do you use the text? What are some of the different ways in which folks view the Mahabharata, and what is your stance in terms of the method in which you engage the text? Yes, thank you, Raj. That's a, a very important question um, because it's really, I think, only because I approach the text in the way I do that I have been able to take this question seriously enough um, and and come up with these two. I mean, they're not watertight answers at all, but they're they're kind of possible ways of of, of moving towards an answer. Um, yeah. So so. Well, the Mahabharata is viewed in many ways. Um, I am not uh, a member of the faithful community, so I don't um, I don't revere any of the Mahabharata's characters as as gods. Um, I have a, a scholarly view, a scholarly approach to the text, but it, it it's not um, it's not aligned with the main scholarly view that we've seen in 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 the past few hundred years. Uh, which, which has been a tendency for European and uh, American scholars to 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 view the text as a text that was built up gradually over several, well, many hundreds of years, expanding uh, with successive uh, editors and and really changing character quite uh, quite significantly from one century to another. Um, and according to that view, in fact, uh, which goes in English language scholarship, goes back to uh, Edward Washburn Hopkins, who, who was writing at the end of the 19th century and at the very beginning of the 20th. Um, according to that view, the, 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 the principle of avatara, the idea of avatara, and also the, the idea of the yuga cycle, 
are both usually thought to be, as it were, late entries into the Mahabharata. So, so if it's difficult to, to make sense of them with respect to the text as a whole, the tendency of scholars has to be has been to say, well, they they were introduced only latterly and and not very convincingly and not very systematically. So um, so traditionally, or tra traditionally within the academic community, uh, there hasn't really been much attempt to to resolve this contradiction. It's been placed alongside other apparent contradictions as, as it were, as a byproduct of the text's gradual expansion. Um, so in order to take this question seriously, I've, I've, I've developed a, a way of viewing the text as, as simply as one text. So I, I don't think of it as the eventual result of a series of uh redactions or i don't think of it as something that's changed character i just look at the text that we have which is the the critically reconstituted puna text and and just try and take well i i think of it as taking it on its own terms and just uh i'm just not imagining that it was ever anything different from what it presents as um and in fact, that, for me at least, that, that approach to the text means including the Harivamsha as part of it. Um, so the last time we spoke uh, in, in these circumstances was about the, the translation of the Harivamsha that I've published. In fact, that, uh, that translation project was a means to an end for me. It, it was in order to enable me to... to to have before me uh, in English the whole the whole of what I think of as the Mahabharata. And, and for this project, that was particularly important because quite a lot of the discussion of yugas and of avatars in the Mahabharata is in fact found within the Harivamsha. So if you try to, to, to answer my title question, um, and you thought that the Mahabharata ended at book 18, then you, you wouldn't have the tools at your disposal to, 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 to propose the answers that I'm proposing. So, so in fact, that, that method has been, has been vital, I think, to, the, to, the, to being able to, to have a, a new stab at what is a reasonably venerable scholarly question at the very least. Yeah, one of one of the elements of your work that really resonates, and of course, uh, we uh, I've uh, uh, we've done hundreds of podcasts on a variety of s sorts of projects and methods and et cetera, et cetera. This happens to be one on Sanskrit narrative. It happens to be one on Mahabharata in particular, and 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 so it's a text that I've looked at. I've published a few articles on, and hopefully, monograph three will be on the Mahabharata. But one of the things that 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 really and truly resonates with with me about your approach is taking the text at face value and um, you know, honoring it as a synchronic whole. Now, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't have a quibble with the notion that it was diachronically produced or that it was produced over a period of time. Is that something that you you just don't engage or is that something where 
that may well be, but at some point we have a completed text, or at least now in modern times, we have a critical edition. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's a good question, Raj, because I, I think the standard way of, of, of coming to terms with this uh, these two different methods is, is to associate them with different historical theories about how the text was composed. So the diachronic approach says that the text was built up in stages over a long period. And the so-called synchronic approach tends to say that no, the text was uh, composed in a relatively short period. And of course, that's what Alf Hiltebeetle um, proposed in his Rethinking the Mahabharata book, where, as it were, he, he, he justified the synchronic method on the basis of a historical uh, a historical proposition that the the text was was produced relatively quickly. Now, what I've tried to do is to decouple the question of approach to the text from the question of the historical question of of how it came to be. So I'm actually agnostic about uh, the textual history. I don't think that the the Hopkins school. Uh, have proved their point, and I don't think that the Hiltebeetle school have proved their point either, and I don't see how either of those two camps will ever be able to prove their point. So, so which, I, you, which you mentioned explicitly, I believe, in your introductory chapter. Yes, uh, yes. So, and and it, it, it's for me, uh, it's, so it, the, the, I have particular approach to such texts, whether it's the Devi Mahabharata, the Markandi Purana, or the Mahabharata. And I tend to believe that they were produced over a fair amount of time. But at the same time, I I don't couple that with a particular methodology in, insofar as it's clear to me that if that is the case, that produced over centuries, Either way, it's abundantly clear that by the final redactions, there's extraordinary unity. Yeah. Extraordinary care to what's framed where and narrative design. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Whether that's because of a short composition or whether that's because of uh, brilliant redactors and, 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 and literary folks who, you know, whether it's uh, the power of tradition, who knows. But it's, it's, it's clear to me that even if it's diachronically produced, which I, which I actually happen to believe, it nevertheless is it's very fruitfully synchronically engaged. These yeah. texts are, yeah, and so so that's part of what resonates with what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, what what I've tried to do is to bracket out any anything that requires beliefs. So if if a if a question can't <laughs> be properly resolved on the basis of the evidence, then I just kind of think, well, we can't. That can't matter. Then we have to do something that that doesn't interfere with. Um, no, what would you say if um, for folks who might say, look, um, they may have critiques of the enterprise of creating critical editions or, or the particular manner in which the Mahabharata critical edition were created, or, you know, would it be the case that you might ever look to um, 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 uh, the apparatus or different recensions or different versions, or, you know, what's, what's sort of your position on, on some of the qualms with the critical edition for some scholars? Well, um, I think that the critical edition is a, uh a real 
a real problem for the diachronic approach. Um, because in fact, when the when the critical edition project was first mooted, it was it was imagined by all and sundry that it would have the effect of of uh, of proving philologically that the parts of the Mahabharata that were widely thought to be later editions were in fact later editions, and that it would allow uh, the editors to move back to the real epic. Uh, but it didn't have that effect at all. And so I think that it I think that from the uh, diachronic school, there's been a tendency to to pick holes in the or to, to be more critical about the the method and the product of the critical edition than uh, otherwise they would have been. Um, I think that it was extremely well done. Uh, I think that the the Mahabharata tradition uh, was, peculiarly amenable to the method that was applied to the stematic method. And I've, I, I think it's a very, very convincing reconstruction. I mean, obviously there are, there are some parts where you might disagree with what the editors have done, particularly with um, the principle of Lectio Difficilior, where sometimes there is something that is really quite difficult to 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 make sense of in in the reconstituted text but in almost all the manuscript versions um they have something that makes much better sense so i think that there's certainly scope for disagreeing with the editorial decisions on in in specific instances but overall i think it is a very convincing and enormously um useful um publication the, the, the critical edition I, I i can't i can't really imagine mahabharata studies without it now because i mean it means we can all talk about the same text um so i yes yes absolutely yeah yes um part of what part of what really for me demonstrated the power of the critical edition uh not to say you know one couldn't have arms or there aren't ways to um improve upon it or one might say hey you know there's this wonderful story of um uh, of of Ganesha serving as a scribe of the Mahabharata that's known through our tradition but isn't you know but but having said that interestingly enough it was uh looking at your patriline book when I was dissertating Mm -hmm. And your read of the story world to point to a character that was implied, thinking through uh, Umberto Eco's um, reader response theory, and and it was it was the ability to do that, and so um, so so lucidly read what the story is doing, where I thought, you know what this must be a really close approximation because there's far too much literary brilliance in the story world as yeah. is. And without getting into too many details, I, I ended up um, writing an article, I think it was in the IJHS, um, um, International Journal for, for Indian Studies, mm -hmm. that it was published in, but it, it, was, um, it was actually showing that the same inside 
story or, or, or a joke or, or the same the same notion that you pointed to in the Patriline book that's embedded in in one of the key frame narratives of the Mahabharata, that the Markandeya Purana is aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, blew my world open. It was yeah. like th- this this text is this is a, a very powerful reconstitution of uh, an approximation of. Yeah, yeah, you know the uh, oldest living ancestor of the Mahabharata. I think that's a good example, Raj, to 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 show that it it is generally a, a good reconstruction. I, I mean, I I did a bit of uh, I did an article a long time ago, um, where I analysed a particular uh, sequence of chapters in the critical edition as a, as a ring composition. Um, ring composition. Tell me more. Um, oh. Well, uh, it's a very carefully constructed uh, thing that starts where it ends and that goes on stages from the start to the midpoint where it changes direction and then mm. comes back via the same stages. Uh, I tease because, I of course, my, my, my dissertation shows of the Devi Mahatmya as a carefully crafted yeah. ring composition, but please continue. Well, I've, I found this, this ring composition in, in book one uh, in the critical edition, and then when I looked at the apparatus to see where the colophons were in the various manuscript traditions, it became clear that this ring composition that was visible, or just about visible in the uh, in the reconstituted critical edition, would have been far far less visible in any of the manuscript traditions. So it looked as if it must have been a, 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 an aspect of the text a long, long time ago in the archetype that was then kind of forgotten about or, or, or covered over somehow in the interim in the various branches of the tradition. And it was only the reconstruction attempt that had kind of uncovered it again. But the critical editors themselves hadn't spotted uh, that ring composition. So, well, well, no one has. I mean, a handful of South Asianists have in various texts, but it, it's it's fascinating to me a that this phenomenon exists in in, in seemingly unrelated traditions. And one wonders if it's just a function of perhaps uh, oral culture, if it's a device for remembering, if it's who knows, you know, who knows right. where this comes from. But, but but the idea, but, but go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Raj, um, me and you have an awful lot to talk about with respect to ring compositions, but this book uh, doesn't talk about ring compositions. So that, uh, some, some readers may be uh, very relieved that this is a book where Brodbeck doesn't bang on about ring compositions. Yes, this book does not talk about ring compositions. And so I, I have to watch myself speaking with someone like Simon, and I always keep this very accessible. Um, but nevertheless, we can have we can nerd out uh, on ring composition that's at some other future time, perhaps at Spalding in the spring. Um, you know, it, it is a fascinating book, your discussion, the, 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 the taking at face value, the text as it is, and the impulse to not um, dismiss as later interpolation elements that are innate to the text that tradition has maintained in this manner for whatever reason, um, and trying to make sense of it and think alongside the text. You know, it is fascinating. Um, was there anything in this, in your um, work in this process that uh, surprised you or that sort of stood out to you in your in your mm. in yeah. this journey? 
No, I mean, many things, many things. But but one very important thing is uh, it relates to something that you said, actually, right at the beginning of this conversation, which is to which is you alluded to um, the idea that we're in the Kali Yuga and that there's a lot more Kali Yuga yet to come. <laughs> um, and that statement accords with the 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 standard presentation of the yuga cycle in in the puranic text as, as accepted uh, and spoken of very widely in south asia today um but interestingly it's not the case in the mahabharata because in the as far as i could tell in the mahabharata the yuga cycle lasts 12000 years and the Kali Yuga lasts 1,200 years. So, um, so yes, so the new Mahayuga, the new wonderful golden age, uh, should have come about, according to the Mahabharata's uh, Yuga system, 1,200 years after the Kurukshetra War. And, and it's on the basis of that timings those timings that i think the the early audiences of the mahabharata were anticipating the imminent arrival of the golden the new the next mahayuga and the next golden age um so it's interesting that in the 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 the, the puranic scheme the yugas are all 360 times longer than they are presented as being in the mahabharata um, and according to that longer time scale, the drama that I talk about towards the end of my book uh, of of the early audiences thinking that the the, the new Mahayuga was coming soon, that drama is completely now absent because, as you say, we've got an awful lot more Kali Yuga to get through before we can hope for a new golden age, according to the Puranic scheme. But what's interesting is that um, it is widely thought that the Mahabharata too um, considers all the Yugas to be 360 times as long as in fact it does consider them to be. So one of the things I had to do was to was to find the verses that people base their uh, the, the durations on and, and to show that there is no suggestion here that the, 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 when it counts in years, that they are years of the gods. Uh, they're not. They're normal terrestrial years. Um, but there's quite a lot of scholars who have said otherwise. And I think it's... it's, it, it, it's it's a very important part of the book to, 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 as it were, push that misinterpretation aside and to allow the Mahabharata to, to, to speak for itself on that question. But it's very easy to see um, why the, 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 the longer system would have been interpretively uh, overlain onto the Mahabharata in retrospect, because it, it gives the lie to the Mahabharata's yuga system when time keeps on marching on and the, the the new golden age has apparently still not arrived. And we know that it hasn't arrived because we can't live to be 400 years old. Um, so I think it's, uh, 
the, the Mahabharata system of numbering um, has been been replaced, as it were, in order to allow the yuga idea to to be maintained. But it's it's a rather different idea if you can't properly look forward to uh, the next golden age. That's a fascinating and important distinction, and corrective indeed, in terms of the in terms of the Mahabharata's conception of of yugas. Um, was there anything else that that sort of stuck out in your mind or sort of surprised you about this research? Well, um, yes. I mean, it 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 ended up centering to a large degree around uh, the character of the earth who is personified female in, in Sanskrit mythology and plays a big role here because she's the one who is suffering um, with the weight of excess people upon her and who goes to the gods. There are various different presentations of this scene, so it's not it's not always exactly the same god that she approaches first, but uh, the, the, the descent of the gods uh, at in order to to produce a large massacre at Kurukshetra was at the behest of the earth in order to to solve her problem and um and so that lent a, a gendered aspect to 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 the discussions and it also well it 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 resonates quite well with with the place in history where we find ourselves at the moment because of course there's there's quite a lot of talk about the personified earth in, in the newspapers and has been for several years and will continue to be because we are in the time of climate change and um, environmental crisis. And so the, 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 situ, the kind of situation that the, the, the narrative responds to, the earth's complaint, is it, it, it's... It matches, in a way, our current situation. I mean, I alluded to that in the in the last couple of pages. I mean, I haven't um, I haven't sought to bring out uh, that that comparison, but I think no reader will fail to notice it nonetheless. And it, effectively, it meant that uh, this turns out to be a much more topical book than it would have been if it had been written twenty years ago. Um, I, 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 I I'm not sure that it, it it gives us any particular answers apart from the, the what we already know that that the, you know having fewer people on the planet would would be helpful for the planet's future. But uh, but it meant that all the time I was writing it, I was um, you know it it it, it 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 rang bells. It rang bells in 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 a way that. Uh, you don't necessarily expect ancient Sanskrit literature to do. Without question, without question. I've recently uh, put together um, a collection of uh, of stories for a book called The Stories Behind the Poses. And uh, I vividly remember uh, rendering the story of Prithu, you know, of Prithvi, and, uh, um, and, and just being struck with uh, the parallels and actually tease them out because it's, it's for more of a, a popular or spiritual audience, and I tease out some of the parallels to our current situation and, and this this sort of uh, this this the, this this profoundly 
applicable uh, ancient Indian, you know, uh, as if cautionary tale or sort of uh, narrative synopsis of, uh, of a situation we find ourselves in, of an overburdened earth that's mm-hmm. plagued with the ills of man, pun intended, and and... And, and here we are. So it is. It is fascinating. But you know, maybe the Mahabharata is right. What's not there is nowhere at all. So, <laughs> well, the, there's one way to make that the case, and that's to dive into the text and not come out. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think uh, one of the things that came through quite strongly in in uh, uh, my research results was was the the, the, the idea that the, the Earth doesn't really care about. Um, about how good people are it's it's their sheer quantity that upsets her so 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 she 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 needs a massacre i mean in 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 the text she 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 needs an awful lot of people to die um but she's she's rather less concerned with uh the people that are left behaving badly or or well that that's that's not so much a concern for her that would be a concern as it were for the gods and so um there's a section where i talk about the two functions of the avatara Mm. one of which is to to rescue the earth from overcrowding and from sinking um, but that is not as a function of the avatara that krishna mentions in the bhagavad-gita where it's about uh, restoring dharma. Um, as it turns out, I think, uh, those two functions are opposites. And so when the earth is made happier, uh, dharma decreases. And when dharma is rescued at the end of the cycle for the new cycle, uh, the earth is once more in peril. And so if you like, the the cycle kind of switches backwards and forwards between two two situations, both of which are unbearable and will not do. And that's why there always has to be another cycle. Whichever way it's just swung, it's going to have to swing back because it's it's only really at some point in the middle, which is passed reasonably swiftly in either direction, that that things are as as we would really like them to be. A fascinating uh, proposition, this uh, inverse relationship of which you speak. Um, uh, Is there anything else about the book that you'd like us to touch on before we close for today? Well, uh, well, we could touch on any number of things. I mean, I I think it's sure. Although it's quite a short book, I think there's quite a lot in it. I mean, I, 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 it, it, it's it's really a, a map of my thinking on, on this topic, and and which I did for several years until I just felt as if I couldn't, you know, that I was I was I wasn't getting any further. So there's no, there is the 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 solutions that I propose are not are not a hundred percent successful, uh, but but it it I think it's it. Potentially, it could be quite an exciting book to read because uh, it, it, I think it's full of ideas. I think it's full of ideas. But one of my very favourite bits of it, actually, is where in order to... And this is something I developed in conversation with my my father, um, is to imagine how the world could 
could move through the yuga system, could move from one yuga to another without um, an avatara turning up down here and doing anything in particular. So uh, at the end of chapter four, there's a there's a description of of of, of a, mecha a, a a mechanical machine, uh, an invented machine with pictures, um, where where it, it can appear that the yugas are changing at the right points, um, without anything, without any special input. So, with this machine, you just turn a handle at one side. And as long as gravity is constant, and you can turn this handle very, very slowly, but at a, a steady rate, um, the mechanism will move through the yugas at exactly the right points without you having to press any extra button saying, okay, it's time to change yuga. So so there's a, if you like, a, a mechanical theological model um, that I invented in order to try and think about whether an avatar was really causally necessary um, in order to, 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 as it were, push time forward from, from section to section. So I, I particularly uh, enjoyed... The Yuga, the Yuga machine. That, the Yuga machine, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, and I, sure. I, I, I tried to make some bits of this book funny, but I realised that my sense of humour um is an is, is not obvious so whenever i give a talk i try and make jokes but people, <laughs> always, people always laugh at different points um but but this, <laughs> this, this this book is intended to be funny in parts <laughs> well um part of the utility of the podcast from what i gather from what folks have said um, uh, it turns out a number of our colleagues listen and, and uh, um, they say they quite enjoy getting a sense of the personalities of some of the people they read or, or will read. And, and you know, really, it, it may well make a difference in the read. I mean, having met you a handful of times and certainly collaborated over uh, email and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I, I get a sense of the funny bits. <laughs> Good, good, good. <laughs> but at the same time perhaps without uh you know um a, a sense of the personage behind the research right no often it can be extremely difficult i mean yeah. I, I think it's very i mean i think there's an awful lot of jokes in the mahabharata but it's extremely difficult to get them um often you kind of think is that a joke how can i tell um <laughs> how can i tell but no, I'm sure you're right. Just a bit of a, a a bit of exposure to the personality behind the behind the writing is is enormously helpful in gauging the the tone. But I'd hasten to add that I am deadly serious about the book. You know, I mean, it's a, although it does have funny bits in it, um, it's it, 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 I, I I hope it will be received as a as a serious contribution uh, and a useful contribution to 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 what is really quite a an obvious um teaser in the text it's it's a uh, funny bits notwithstanding it is without question a serious piece of scholarship on a number of levels 
Um, so congratulations for getting it out into the world. And perhaps we'll close with uh, the question of um, what next or what now? Yes, well, that is a good question because in a way, uh, this is a, a stopping point for me because I... I I did the Harivamsha translation in order to be able to, to to do this project. I mean, there are other projects that that will facilitate as well, but but at the moment, I'm 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 busy translating. Um, I'm translating book seven, the Drona Parvan of the Mahabharata, um, because it is it is intended to complete the. Uh, University of Chicago Press translation that, that Van Boytenen began in the early 1970s. Um, it is intended to complete that translation with or without the University of Chicago Press. And I'm I'm part of the current team that is uh that is in that is is working on that. So 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 yes, at the moment I'm I'm trying to say no to to any other things I wake up in the middle of the night wondering about and and trying not to start any any new research projects because that's that's a big task um and that's going Absolutely. to keep me busy for several years very very happy years they will be uh, excellent uh we so look forward to uh that parvin being published and certainly we'll we'll chat about that on the podcast and um most recently uh wendy doniger had finished the last couple of books in uh, in the translation project and but if there are numbers still at large <laughs> perhaps there will come a day on the earth plane when this perhaps this translation project will see the light of day in entirety uh, but it'll be probably uh, at least a decade i imagine well it's a big job i mean yeah it's huge. the ramayana translation project uh, the, the first volume was 1984, and the last volume was 2017. So well, a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and uh, and that the Mahabharata is much bigger than that. So to to, to do these things properly, it does it it does require patience. Yeah, but but time is long, and so we will get there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, we look forward to it. Well, Simon, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks very much, Raj. Yeah. For those listening, well, we've been speaking with Dr. Simon Brodbeck um, of Cardiff University um, on a really fascinating open access publication called Define, Divine Descent and the Four World Ages in the Mahabharata. Um, um, just click in the podcast notes and you will have instant access to this uh, fascinating new work. Until next time, keep well, keep listening and keep contemplating the cyclical nature of time. Take care.